she'd be so proud. I hope she would say, you know, if other people who are hurting the way my family has hurt and is hurting, if those other people can have some comfort from knowing that you can survive that loss, you can survive that loss and you can go on to live a rich and warm and loving and rewarding and hopeful life, then I think Dara Fitz would say, on you go girl, it's your book. Hello and welcome. My name is Liz Gleeson and you're listening to Shapes of Grief. Shapes of Grief is a curation of stories from international guests who are authors, grief professionals and ordinary people all with a unique perspective on grief and loss. Loss and the resulting grief can really have such a profound effect on our lives and it is my intention that these conversations may provide some comfort, hope and inspiration to you, our listeners. If you find the podcast supportive, please do consider becoming a patron on patreon.com. Even a euro or a dollar per month can help keep us going. For more grief resources and grief supports, find and follow us on all the usual social media channels and on shapesofgrief.com. On a storm-torn shoreline, a woman was standing. The spray hung like jewels in her hand. Mid the rock, the rock of that desolate landing. Oh, as though there were none, she stood there. Welcome everybody to this episode of Shapes of Grief. I am so happy to be sitting here with Neve Fitzpatrick. Neve is a psychologist, author, and has written the most beautiful book, genuinely, um, Tell Me the Truth About Loss. Neve, you're so welcome. Thanks for inviting me. We're, we've so much to talk about today, as always. Um, what I love about your book is it's so authentic, vulnerable, factual, and you talk about so many different types of loss that often are forgotten. Um, Neve, will you tell us how you came to write this book? Where would you like to begin? I know a lot of the public know about your sister who died tragically and suddenly three years ago, but your journey with grief started before Dara died. Yeah, I think it was only though when Dara died and I began to, to, to experience all those huge feelings of grief that I realised that I had recognised some of those from a few years before. So in 2013, I had been on, I was married at the time, and we had tried to have a family. So it's that journey of IVF, of fertility testing, um, treatment, moving into an adoption process and none of which ended with being parents and so as I began to grieve Dara I recognised some of those feelings they felt familiar from 2013 from those four years beforehand. They are slightly different, They, it's almost like if I was to put a word in it I'd, I'd almost say that the grief for Dara was noisier, I want to say, louder, bigger. 
not stronger, not all those other griefs. So the grief, basically for me, the end of my marriage, the loss of, you know, hope of being a mother and the loss of my sister, they would be, you know, three losses in my life. And as I said, it was only when I had those feelings around Dara, when Dara died mm. and just the whole life crashed around all of us at the time. And I noticed those feelings that in time I started to realise that there were shades or reflections or echoes of these feelings before. And I then started to name it and to say, oh my goodness, nobody died when we went through infertility and that journey, but actually hope had died. And what I grieved when, when all of that didn't work and I had to accept that I wasn't going to become a mother what I grieved was the loss of hope. When Dara died, I grieved the loss of my sister and my friend. Yeah. And I think the public looking in, they see so a tangible grief when somebody dies. But I think what few people know and what you illustrate beautifully in the book is our loss of assumptions about the future, a loss of a dream. And to become a mother or a parent is such a basic fundamental dream or assumption that so most of us have not everybody but many of us have we just assume that this will happen if i want it to happen would it be okay to ask you a little bit more about that grief and you know how you managed it in the world because when someone dies the world rallies and people send you messages and bring you dinners and send you flowers and give you allowances or make allowances for you but when you're going through such a personal ongoing grief that you don't even know yet is it a grief do I still have hope where am I going with this you're very much on your own Mm. would I be right in saying that it's a much more lonely kind of grief to experience that's what it feels like and it's almost as if it feels to me that it's more if this is the right word more comfortable to both maybe talk about but also hear about bereavement loss and bereavement grief so you know at the time when you find out when I found out that really fertility testing and treatment was going to be needed I think in that moment when you sit in the GP's chair and there's that that topic is brought up we're going to refer you on you know you start to have these conversations I think you know, loss and grief somewhere starts somewhere in your head. But for me, there may be many who would recognize it as loss at that time. Honestly, you know, I'm a psychologist nearly 30 years. I don't know why I didn't see that as loss. I just didn't. Um, I was so focused on, I was so focused on being grateful for having the chance to go for IVF, the chance to pursue that path and that I probably focused on that and I threw myself really into it and I uh, you know I just want to say I talk about this from my own perspective I'm quite aware that I didn't go through this on my own I had been on radio years ago with Ray Darcy and doing the agony onslaught and IVF came up and you know in conversation with my husband I had said if it comes up that I have personal experiences it's okay and he said kindly said yes so I suppose I I talk about this from my own perspective and but I think 
I just threw myself into that journey of tests and injections and appointments and dates and blood tests and all of these things and I just immersed myself in it and then when it came to an end and when the adoption process came to an end and there's even a silence here now because I think there was a silence then I just didn't know what to do there's no funeral there's no you know sympathy cards there's there's just nothing yeah but yet there's this future and there's this huge void yeah yeah because you haven't I hadn't figured out yet well you know what was life going to be like if that path wasn't going to be a path for me if I wasn't going to be a mother and I so I wouldn't be somebody who thinks that we're defined by anything so I don't think um, I think our identities are very closely linked maybe sometimes to what we do or the roles we have in life I, under, I understand that but I wouldn't see it that you're only okay if you you know are a mother you're only okay if you're married or you're only okay if you know, whatever um, it's a bit like the, the Baz Luhrmann song maybe okay. you'll get married maybe you won't maybe you'll have children maybe you won't you know so I, I, I would be I would subscribe to that so but yet there was this sense of sort of the, the what now. And, it's, and there was never a sense of, you know, I need to be a mother or I need to have children to, to make my life okay. There, that wasn't the thinking. But I just didn't know what then. And so I would say there was a quiet and a silence. And if I now could go back to me then and talk to her. What would you say? I would say, <laughs> ironically... I would say, okay, you don't see this as a loss. I get that. But it is a huge thing and has been a huge thing for years in your life, this journey from that first GP to the end of the road. Just go and have a little chat to somebody about it. Mm. And I had talked to um, a therapist in the middle of the IVF journey when there were maybe conversations around different options and, and things to do but I never went to somebody when it was finished when the whole motherhood thing was finished and I knew that was a no and that wasn't going to be for me how did that moment land with you that was there a moment where you decided that's it we've tried enough or were you told that's it it's not going to happen Hi everyone, excuse this brief interruption. It's Liz here and I wanted to tell you about my grief training program. If you are interested in becoming grief literate or grief trained, I've designed a comprehensive online program which you can do at your own pace in your own time. It's been designed primarily for healthcare providers, but we all have a right to grief training and education. So if you're interested, then it's for you too. Sign up today at shapesofgrief.com. Now, back to the podcast. That doesn't really even feel like maybe a moment. That feels more almost like an unfurling mm. of a piece of string, you know, where there's little bit by little bit by little bit understanding this isn't going to happen, this isn't going to happen, this isn't going to happen. And then getting to a place of realising that the whole life that I thought was mapped out, which might have been, you know, a mother's life, 
and in time a grandmother's life like you know this idea of because you when it's you just an assumption isn't it yeah and, and not a i don't think we make that assumption from a place of arrogance or i think it's naivety such a naivety you know sure if, if I want to be a parent who can be a parent you know and how when i even say it like that i think oh Niamh, how how rude how who who are you to think that why you know myself and I, and someone i support we talk about the innocence when we were innocent like before the big loss happened it's like we have this innocent innocence or naivety mm. that things will just go right because they always have mm. yeah you for know. sure so i think that 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 bit about it landing and where it landed and how it landed mm. there was almost a little releasing of until I got to the place where I realised it wasn't. And then in terms of how it landed, you know, I as I said, I would say to me, just go, you're in the psychology profession, just go and talk to somebody. And process it. And, and grieve, process it. And, yeah. But, I, but even if I couldn't have seen it, it's probably, not probably, it is why I wrote about it. Because I did think long and hard about just writing about bereavement, grief. And loss that would have been so much easier but actually it impacted not realizing and naming that as a loss and therefore not really processing it I think I probably only properly you know it took me a while to process it took me much longer to process that and to get to a place of acceptance that I wasn't going to be a parent and and then that was okay I think, and it's not about speed, loss and grief isn't about speed, but I think I might have maybe had less turmoil had I gone to have that professional help. Mm. And I don't think, you know, grief is not, and loss is not something we need to pathologize. A lot of people don't need that help. But actually, that was such a change of life to realize that I was never going to know that part of life. And, and, and that life is so... And we think of life, it's so family orientated and it almost feels to me as if when you're not a parent, when I'm, you speak about me, when I'm not a parent, that I'm looking at life through a glass window and families and parents and that whole thing and family life is the other side of the glass window and I can see it but I can't get at it. Now I don't feel like that now, but certainly at that time and everybody around you at that age they're having children and they're, you know, pregnancy announcements and first birthdays and christenings and all so this. When is it going to be my turn? Yeah. Mm. So that took, a, that took a long mm. time, I suppose, to process. And I think when I, when I think of that now, I think of people maybe, I know we're in these times with COVID, so maybe people aren't in their workplace in the same way as they would have been before you know, March 2020. But, you know, some are. And certainly if you think of that workplace and going into a workplace on a Monday morning, you know, there can be people in that space with their colleagues to do a job who might have had that news about an adoption process that hasn't been successful, a fertility process that's the same, but nobody knows about it. Yeah, yeah. And, and you might just see your colleague being spiky or grumpy or walking away from conversations, make judgments about them. Mm. It's, the, mm. it's that, that meme that went around after Robin Williams died. Be kind, you never know what anyone's going through. 
And actually, everyone is going through something at That's some it. stage. Yeah. Like really, mm. everyone is going through something mm. at some stage. Yeah. You know? Because we're, we're, we're all human. We all, if you like or love at some point, we lose. And that's not said in a, you know, scary, morbid way in any ways. It's actually a freeing thing that we understand that, you know, when we love something and it's not there anymore, um, that the feelings that come with that, that can feel so overwhelming and so, um, you know, it sort of upends us, if you like, that those feelings are normal. Of course they are. You have lost something that you love. So whether that's, you know, maybe a career, whether it's a hope, whether it's that, you know, anything in life you've had, but there's something you have wanted or loved or liked and had in your life and it's now not there, if it's a person or a dream. Yeah. It's okay to feel that feeling, those feelings you have afterwards. In fact, it's more than okay. It's, it's necessary. necessary. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Neve, you, you talk about your marriage breakdown as well, or the end of your marriage. I don't know if I like the word breakdown. Um, and I resonated a lot with that from someone who's separated five years now as well. And again, it is a dramatic loss, a massive loss that people often don't recognise, particularly if you've both chosen to do it. Like, even if you choose to end your marriage, or both of you do, it's still devastating. It's not what you, mm. what you assumed, again, about the future. Mm. Would you talk a little bit about the grief of that, Neve, of the impact of that? I know you talk about it in the book, which is great. Mm. Um, but it, like the IVF that didn't work out, nobody sends a sympathy card when your marriage is is over nobody mm. brings dinner around mm. you know they don't get it and i think like any any bereavement it's like oh that's something that happened back then they don't realize that this is something we carry with us all mm. the time we're still trying to adjust to this new role mm. if i'm not wife if we're not a family if you know who am i or where am i or mm. you know dealing with people's projections and judgments about what it means to have a the language we use marriage breakdown or a yeah. broken home this these kind of words mm. how was it for you um and again i suppose on speaking that, yeah so again on that one i'd be mindful really um that my discussions in the book on on both fertility and um relationship ending are around my feelings around both yeah. rather than the details of rather both, than the that's story. not exactly and, you know it, 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 it's so difficult to actually speak about separation and divorce I've recorded three or four interviews with people on the topic on the grief of it and I've chosen not to broadcast them because there's just something too tender about it or there's the potential for acrimony afterwards so I really get that and thank you for you know, being really clear about that. This is your experience of the grief yeah. as opposed to your separation yeah. story. And I think my, in, in my own situation, ours is amicable. He's a lovely man. Um, and so I'm fortunate in that way. I can't imagine what it would be like if things weren't like that. But I think when you think about that time that you, you know, say if it's a marriage, my instance is a marriage, you know, you, you stand up at that altar and you say above everybody else in life, 
I'm going to choose to be with you till death us do part. And then you're going to choose to be with me till death us do part. And then when you get to the point where the relationship hasn't worked and you're not able to be together any longer, it's you tear up. Tear is not the right word, actually. You take apart, it feels to me, you take apart that life that you had built together. So, you know, when you meet somebody, people start putting your two names together. And then, you know, you get Christmas cards or together, both your names on it, you know, and maybe a house, if you're lucky enough to have a house and a mortgage or, you know, again, in joint names and all of these things. And you're, you're seen together. And you have your each separate lives, but you're seen together. And then when this relationship hasn't worked, that you took so much care to, to, to mind and to nurture, to get to the point where you both thought, yes, it's you over all people in the whole world. It's you I'm going to sort of tether myself to. And yet the two of you couldn't make it work. Mm-hmm. And at that point, then it becomes about... You know, this is a podcast that people can't see me, obviously, but I keep wanting to do this. It's almost as if I have, you know, something in my right hand and I'm sort of tearing bits off of it, taking bits off it with my left hand. You it's like you 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 dismantle. That's the word you dismantle. Your lives together, the physical life, the financial life, the emotional life, they aren't the person that you want to ring during the day when something happens and tell them they're not the person. This was the person, you know, and things become separate and it's, you know, single different houses and different bank accounts and different and you get the Christmas card and it's just to you, you know, and it's just because it's, I think as well with the relationship ending and it doesn't have to be a marriage. And, and also actually what I would say is it doesn't have to be a romantic relationship. So it could be a friendship that's ended. It could be a familial situation where, you know, people in a family, for whatever reason, they no longer speak. When all that happens, you are dismantling a life that you once had with this person. And sometimes within relationship breakdown, it can be, you know, there, there are steps you have to do, the legal, the financial, the practical. Maybe in a familial setting or a friendship setting, there's even nothing of that. There's just nothing. There's, There's just no silence. Presence. There's just, just happens. It's like uh, undercurrents under the carpet. Yes. That aren't talked about, but they're there. And you yes. can feel it so acutely. Yes. Yeah. So it's hard. It's hard. I think it's, I think what, the reason I wrote about this as a loss is because it's, you know, there are so many people who are in long-term relationships and they end. And so it's something that visits so many of us. But it's not even that bit funny enough. I understand what you're saying when you say, you know, well, people don't send cards or they don't, you know, acknowledge that loss. And it was only when you said it, I was wondering, I don't even know. I don't even know personally that I would want people to do that or I need them to do it. I think what it is for me is that that support you get when somebody dies, if you're lucky enough to get support when somebody dies, because not everybody does. But that support we tend to get around, you know, wake and a funeral that we used to have pre-COVID. Um, actually, there's such there's such security in that. There's such warmth in that. There's such 
there's such a support in that. For people's physical presence, yeah. isn't it? It's, I suppose the card is like the symbol yes. of somebody being present and aware of what you're going through. Yes. That's missing yes. when yeah. you go through separation. And even knowing that, you know, because I know people now whose relationships have ended and I have sent them a card or something. It's just to say, mm. it's, for me, it's that bit around... Um, and actually, Dara's friend, Sarah Hegarty, had sent me a note at one stage. And on the note was a quote. I, I don't know where she got it. And it says, if you cannot look on the bright side, I will sit with you in the dark. Mm. And I just thought it was, it's so beautiful. It's just so beautiful. And I think that's what it's about. It's about saying if somebody is in pain for whatever their loss in their life, that when it's a bereavement loss, Essentially, some people tend to say to you that version of if you cannot look on the bright side, I will sit with you in the dark. Maybe in previous times they would turn up to the wake. They would hug you. They would look at you with tears in their eyes and they would grasp your hands and they would say, I have no words. Mm. That's what everybody did when Dara died. And so, but in, when a marriage ends or when maybe it's um, that loss around say motherhood or parenthood then there isn't any of that so you really do feel I mean I think we grieve alone even bereavement grief we have to bear that alone we are supported but we still must experience it alone mm. but you're truly alone in the other losses on mm. some level then though when I meet somebody now I've some pals whose relationships whose marriages have ended since mine and we're kindred spirits. We were before, but we're double kindred spirits. You just get it. You get the other layers. Yeah. As you say that, Neve, you put your hand on your tummy there. And um, it reminds me of the part in the book where you talk about the physicality of grief. And this is something that I've researched a lot, actually, how grief affects us physically. And I've written about this. It is such a visceral, physical, like there is, you mentioned the words bone deep a few times in the book, I think Do three I? times. Do I? I was like, bone deep. Oh yeah, I get that. And oh, she said bone deep again. Wow. I think it's in there three times. And it, grief is bone deep. There isn't a cell in your body that escapes it. Like, you, mm -hmm. you know, we're chemically altered, we're emotionally altered, but it's so physical and... I think when a marriage ends or when someone dies, somebody who was with us, who was near us, who even if it's, you know, you describe looking out the window and seeing Dara going in and out, I think we don't realize how much our loved ones regulate us. Like we're being regulated. Even if it's a bad marriage in your kitchen at home, they're there and at some level, their presence regulates us, you know? And that's what uh, really struck me after my separation was how dysregulated on a physical level I was you know how I desperately needed that kind of holding um, and and just ways to regulate my body again you, you really just want someone to come in and put their arms around you but unlike bereavement they're not there you know it's oh sorry that happened and then three weeks later it's kind of like are you not over there? you know that's done that's finished people don't understand that a lot of people don't understand that it's a, an ongoing process that, mm. like you said, it, it takes time. If you're with someone for 20 years, 
you you build that life together you construct it together that's it and then you choose to separate it really takes time to dismantle it mm. you know i would say i'm still dismantling even five years later mm. layer after layer after layer yes. it's extraordinary how entwined we are in each other's lives mm. it's like that Joni mitchell song you don't know what you got till it's gone yeah yeah and uh, i think that the the breadth and depth of grief is underestimated until we live it we've experienced it i think the physicality of grief is probably the bit that surprised me most mm. tell us a bit about that Neve. i would when i think of the physicality of grief i think of two elements two aspects to it so the first is what grief felt like when i heard that dara died so my house is four houses away from Darris, and so we were standing in a kitchen that just looks like my kitchen except a different color um and these two men told us that dara had died and we i don't remember the words i still don't remember the words um uh, but we had waited that morning we got a phone call that morning at six to say the helicopter was down and we waited about six hours and we were told this my body registered that as I stood in her kitchen that I had sat with her in and we had laughed and we had talked and we had cried and we'd made plans and we had done the little days and the big days as I sat in, as I stood in that kitchen with our family and some of our closest friends and I heard that news my body knew that Dara was never going to walk in the door again before my head did. Yeah. Because it was a, it was a physical blow. So I remember the breath went out of my lungs. I remember this wave of nausea. I remember my chest was as if something was, it was like an elephant was sitting on my chest. It was the heaviness heaviness that's the word it's just heaviness in my chest and it was it was a physical response and I don't remember any cognition at all I don't remember any thinking I don't remember saying to myself she's never coming back I don't remember saying I'll never hug her again I'll never see her again I don't remember any of that I just remember this searing violent pain actually is violent pain in my body I mean I was 48 when Dara died and she was 45 and so she is still my sister but we were sisters here together on this earth for 45 years that is such a long time yeah it's such a long time and you know so hearing that she was never coming back and the shock of it because we this came out of nowhere there was no clue there was no idea there was probably some sense of anticipation that morning that it wasn't going to go well, but there really before that there was no clue. And so, you know, I think the body just, it was violent. It was a, it was a vicious, violent reaction. I don't, I've never in my life had a reaction to anything as strong. Um, and well, it's, it's trauma. Yes. There's no other word. Yeah. It's trauma. Completely. That's what it yeah. felt like. And it, I described it to somebody. There's a pal of mine, Giles Warrington. He's a physiologist. We've done a lot of stuff together on the Olympic Games. I've worked with the Irish team for three 
in the past for three Olympic Games and he's a great pal of mine and he came to the funeral and I remember they were on the phone talking to him a couple of days after Dara died and I don't know why was I trying to explain it to me or was I trying to explain it to him but I started talking to him about he asked about that morning the Tuesday morning the six hour wait and I said it's as if we were sitting in a car with the doors locked on a railway tracks there's no key so I can't move the car and I can't get out of the car but I'm looking down the track as that morning progressed and I can see the train coming yeah, and you I know it's that coming. In your book, it was really powerful that moment. I, but I think I need. Mm. You know, sometimes people have said to me, um, "Oh, you have the words." I actually think it's the other way round. I think I had to find the words yeah. because the the loss of Dara is so great that it's only in finding the words that I can understand the feelings and it's only in understanding the feelings that I can begin to process the loss if that makes sense Absolutely. and so that idea that you know you're watching this train and it's coming towards you and then the moment when they tell you that the body has been recovered is Dara's it's the moment that the train hits and it's like your life is catapulted up into the air and it falls down into the ground in pieces and some pieces are intact they're all scattered. Some are intact, but some are gone and some are broken. And that's what it felt like. So it, it, you, it, is, it feels to me like traumatic loss. And so I see, when I think of the physicality of grief, I think of that moment. But I also then think of the physicality of grief afterwards as time has gone on. It feels to me as if I have, understandably and normally, I have struggled my way through grief which I expect, I don't want to, I love her, I love her. I don't want to not have struggled through the fact that she's lost her life and her hope and her future. So I'm okay with that struggle, but I feel as if I've navigated that emotionally quite so well is the wrong word. I don't know what's the right word, but I feel You've that... You've navigated it. There you go. I've navigated it. Perfect. We Thank don't you. have to quantify We don't have to, yeah. It. yeah. Whereas I think physically, mm. I feel ravaged by grief and trauma. That's probably the best way to describe it's like it. like it hits your nervous system and it's just there. Yeah. It's just there and it, it can affect us in so many different ways. Yeah. And I think that's the thing probably if I was to... Again, if I was to go back now, me, three years, or about three and a half years after Dara has died, and if I was to go back then, to me then, I would say, so you're going to tend to do the emotional part of this quite well and mind yourself. But you must also mind your body. Yeah. You must rest and don't worry about sleep do not worry about sleep because the chances are you're not going to sleep because I didn't sleep yeah. I had then when I did sleep I had nightmares my hair fell out and parts I had colds recurring infections I ended up with suspected pneumonia sure enough hospitalized 18 months on steroids and antibiotics my body has just been a mess what I needed to do at some point was stop and rest and let myself just be in that heat yeah. but I had um, 
to work hard to try and convince the bank to give me the mortgage to um, buy my home because my marriage has ended. Again, my husband was kind. He, when I asked him, could I stay in this home and buy him, he was really lovely, beautifully kind and let me do that. But the, you know, the bank needs your kidneys. <laughs> so <laughs> I had to work to do that. So I had to keep going. I also, to be honest, even in the shock of that first year, Sometimes you don't feel like living. You don't want to die, but you don't have that joy to live. But, but other parts of me did want to live, does want to live, do want to get on, do want to do things. And so, you know, that I, just, I kept going, but I, I can see that the casualty was my physical body. And I'm not, it's only now, it almost feels to me now, if the first... If the first three years of grief were like a hurricane... And you're surviving those first three years. And I'm saying three because I don't know anything else. That's where I'm at, it's three years. Mm. And if you're surviving those first three years, it's as if when you've survived that, and I've n- I'm now at a place, even though I'm upset when I'm telling you this, I'm, I'm now at a place where I can live, I can laugh, I can, I can remember Dara and I feel just such a sense of joy for this girl and so proud that she was my sister. I can be ha- properly happy, bone deep happy. I can do all that. I can feel ambitious. I can look forward. I can bring her with me. I feel I'm there. And I feel I probably began to get there maybe two years after she died. Everybody will be different, but it felt to me that it was around then that I started to get hints of that. So at that space, it feels almost as if there was a hurricane and I'm coming out of the bunker. You're in the bunker because that's where grief puts you for that first few years. And I came out of the bunker and now it's as if I'm standing and I'm looking around to see the damage after the hurricane. The hurricane being surviving those first few years after loss. And when I look at the damage, for me the biggest damage is to my physical body. And it feels now like that's my body of work to do, excuse the pun. (laughs) that's my body of work to do Mm. which is I actually want to reclaim myself and it's nothing to do with weight I'm three sizes bigger than I normally am it's nothing to do with weight I couldn't care less about that it is to do with health but it's to do with feeling like me in my skin again because I realize now that actually I began (laughs) I was born underweight I'm a twin we were born three weeks early and I was born underweight but I had struggled with weight ever since. But I probably would have only been maybe, you know, half a stone overweight. I might have been, a, you know, a little bit bigger than I should have been. But no issues. But I began to really gain weight after the IVF and the adoption. Yeah. There, my head, the light bulb moment had yeah. gone to realise. I thought that was, I personally, I have had, I think, hormonally, I've never really been the same after all of that. I, I felt very different after that. But I now realise a huge part of that weight gain and all of that was grief. And it wasn't, oh, I'm sad because I'm not a mother, give me some ice cream. It was the exhaustion of trying to process a grief that I have never named. And the, the, just processing that on my own, because I <laughs> didn't name it. And um, what did I do with exhaustion? I hit the sugar, because what does sugar do? It props you up beautifully. No, it doesn't. You think it props you up beautifully, it but it gives you a whole cycle. That's it, yeah. yeah. So I think that bit around understanding now, when I feel that I've, 
I've now gone back and revisited the loss of motherhood. I've accepted again that loss and understood it. I've accepted the loss of the end of my marriage. And I have accepted and, and, and brought into my life the loss of my sister. Now I feel I'm ready to reclaim my body. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. And, and I think there's so many more layers to it than we actually even realise. You know, you've heard of weighted blankets, people who are anxious. Like, I think some of us need to feel yeah. weight on our bodies to feel safe in the world sometimes. Um, it's quite interesting that, and I find ironic, that, you know, again, only, I can only speak for me, that when I had lost so much... Physically, I gained. Yeah, yeah. I gained, and the one thing I couldn't do was lose. You know, like I, I, I talk a bit in the book about how because I when I saw Dara, Dara died on a Tuesday, and I saw her on the Sunday before she died, and I had seen her on the Friday, I saw her on the Saturday, and I saw her on the Sunday, and each of the Friday and the Saturday, I was going out to do some work with the sports team or something and I would meet her at the end of the drive because we lived four doors apart and she'd say oh you look lovely where are you going and we had this chat and Dara would be one who would say to you you know it doesn't matter what you look like you are you and you are lovely and all that kind of stuff and I can't remember where I was going with this point um but I think I write in the book I know where it was I write in the book about how Each year, since about 2013, when I began to gain the weight, each year a new year <laughs> and Christmas, the joke and the kind, affectionate joke, I must add, in the family would be <laughs> the new year. People say, what are you going to do this year? And they'd all look to me because I'd say, I'm going to lose weight. And it's as if, you know, in Only Fools and Horses, when uh, Del Boy says, this time next year, Rodney, we'll be millionaires. And it's like each year I would say, this time next year, I'll be back in my size 12 jeans. And so there's something there about that thing that I struggled with for so long. But now I know why, because I was surviving. Sometimes when we struggle with something and we aren't able to do something that we know is good for us, we know we need to move. We know we need to have healthy food choices. Why don't we do that at that time? Well, well for me, what I've realised is because sometimes we're just too busy surviving. And, and that's completely it, you know. I'm doing some work at the moment, Eve, on the polyvagal theory. And, you know, with a lot of people I work with, and they think, what's wrong with me and how do I change? When you can understand actually what's happening in your nervous system. I mean, we're all just nervous systems walking around. Yeah. And how when there's a threat, like such as Dara dying or a marriage ending or our dreams blowing up in our faces, our, our sympathetic nervous system is activated. We're in that stress response. We're spiky, we're vulnerable, we're, we're looking for the threat. And we're trying to get comfortable again. We're trying to get safe again in whatever way we can. And one way you know, is by stimulating our vagus nerve, like cold water or a cold shower yeah. or being hugged by someone and interesting masticating, mm-hmm. chewing, yeah. actually stimulates our vagus nerve, which brings our system from activation yeah. to settle, yeah. from sympathetic to parasympathetic. So it's a very basic, basic biological response to stress. Look at the baby 
screaming its head off. Yeah. Give them food, bottle or breast. Or finger in the mouth. Or even. finger in the mouth and let them move their mouth, suck, chew, whatever. Yeah. And they will settle instantly. Yeah. Makes you know, total sense. Makes total sense. Yeah. But, you, but I think you don't... Again, I shouldn't talk about you as other people, <laughs> but I... You, I we sometimes we don't see it at the time you know yeah. i often say a dentist doesn't pull their own teeth because we're so close to yeah. it yeah. so so when you're right in the middle of something and that's one of the reasons i write about this is because maybe somebody will read this for whom some of this stuff might not mean anything or resonate at the time but later on they may say oh my gosh this way i'm feeling these behaviours I'm doing around the not moving and the eating too much or all of those kind of things, maybe I'm trying to survive. And so what the, as a psychologist, then I suppose what I think there is when you at least understand that, we can move away from the layering on top. So often, you know, I'll come across somebody in my personal or my professional life who will say, I feel anxious, what's wrong with me? I haven't cried because my, you know, when my mom died, what's wrong with me? And there's a layering of problem on top of problem. Whereas when you can actually understand that, well, okay, <laughs> these behaviors I'm doing that might be the healthiest for me are an attempt by me to mind myself to survive. Absolutely. Then we can let go of the judgment and the criticism and the guilt of all of that. For sure. I think the closest I've ever heard of someone coming to that point was Sheryl Sandberg. I mean, you've probably read her book, Option B. But the one bit that really jumped out for me was her mother, after her husband died, her mother went and got into bed with her for a month mm. and just held her. Brilliant. And I remember thinking, oh my mm. God, if every grieving person yeah. had that person, it's like getting into the pit or... You know, that little card you mentioned earlier, if you can't look on the bright yes. side. And let's face it, who can? Yes. Um, I'll sit with you in the dark. It's like, who is getting into the pit, the dark, with me? Yes. A woman I interviewed last week, Juliet uh, Rosenfeld, a lovely woman. Um, her husband died. Um, she talks about getting into the wardrobe and smelling his shirts yeah. and closing the door because she didn't want the smell to escape. Mm. And, you know... Could just imagine being the friend who would go in and just get in the wardrobe with you. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It's as basic as that. It's yeah. You know, getting in with someone at their most vulnerable and just being there, not mm. trying to change it, mm. not trying to fix, fix it, it, not not yeah. trying to do anything. Yeah. But just I'm right here with you. Yeah, I think know? even we can go further and that than that, even another step and say part of it is realizing that we need to do that for and with ourselves. So, so one of yes. the ways I think of it is feel the feelings. So, because obviously, you know, what we try and do in life so much as we, we seek consciously or otherwise to, you know, move towards pleasure or perceived pleasure and away from pain. So whereas actually, I think we need to lean into those feelings because we, so we need to allow ourselves to be there and not push them away. And actually, funny enough, I haven't read Sheryl Sandberg's book, I referenced it in mind. I haven't read any books because I didn't want to be influenced in any way. But I love her piece around, um, there was a father-son day at the school, I think it was, or some sort of activity. And 
after her husband had died and one of the friends was going to step in for the father bit, you know, and, and she says, but I want Dave. And the friend says, option A is not available. Let's kick the shit out of option B. Pardon my language, but I'm just quoting. And it, but that friend was so clever and so right and so wise because they were saying, you know, they were actually in some ways, I don't know, forces in the right way, but encouraging encouraging her to confront, to look face on, maybe a better word than confront, but to look face on on the truth, which is that Dave wasn't coming back and that she needed to look at that and see that. So they were nearly asking her to be with herself in the dark, in the wardrobe. Do you know? Does that make any sense? I'm thinking back, Neve, to you coming out of the bunker and looking at the damage of the hurricane. And you mentioned, you know, I'm getting there. And, you know, just to clarify, there is no there, right? No, no. (laughs) Getting there, you know, is maybe, it's manageable now and I can feel joy now. Yeah. And I think people struggle to understand this, that we can desperately miss somebody we love that has died and feel joy again together in the same sentence in the same minute yep same breath you know and getting there means that i'm just not battled down in the bunker floundering or drowning anymore Mm -hmm. you know i'm learning to put my feet under me again have a good time with friends not be consumed by my loss and I am still grieving my sister and mm. I still wish she were here. Yes. You know, and I think yeah. that a lot of, um, and your book does not do this. Juliet said it beautifully, actually, when I interviewed her last week, despite the lessons she's learned or the resilience that she's gained, she would give it all up to have him back. Absolutely. You know, there's, yeah. you know. And I say that uh, because I think I, I, I describe it as, Grief is the gatecrasher that brings gifts to the party. There are things that you learn and things that you get from surviving, especially those early days, months, weeks, years of grief. And they are pretty amazing things in terms of what they do, in terms of helping us go on in our lives. So I would feel things like clarity. I know who I am. I know who I am now. I know what I'm made of. I know what I can handle. And I mean, I, as a psychologist, I know our boundaries. We can do so much more than we think we can. But even for me, the boundary of what I'm able for is much farther out than I had ever imagined. So I have that. I have perspective. I, oh, I know what matters and what doesn't. You know, being liked doesn't matter. Pleasing people doesn't matter. Um, you know, saying yes to things doesn't matter. You know any of the things that are maybe stuff that might have mattered in some ways before they just they don't matter people that we like and love people that I like and love doing meaningful work having experiences over things they now are what matter to me so those experience those kind of things are great and I think even in terms of the body bit so so now I see my body more in terms of function than form so this is the body that allows me to hug those who are in my bubble, <laughs> my COVID bubble. Um, it allows me to read bedtime stories to Fionn. It allows me to, to hear my clients, to hear their stories and to help them as they tell their stories. And so, so that, those perspectives, that clarity, they all bring a sort of a freedom almost in life. It's, if, it's, it feels almost as if 
in surviving that first, that early days of grief and loss, that I've had to become the best version of myself. And there's such a sadness there because Dara never saw that version. But I, in a heartbeat, I would give everything. In fact, I would go further. I would say, I, I'd, give, I'd give anything. It sounds too dramatic to say I'd give all my own tomorrows. But I, I'll be honest with you, that's what's in my head. I would, give, I would give my tomorrows to have her back. Just, you know, and, and you don't want to be greedy with that. So you don't want them back. You're not even, you're not even saying I want them back forever. Because you know you're not going to get that. But if you just had them back for five minutes, it would, would be it amazing. Would No, but there's something about, there's something about not having the goodbye. There's something about that. That's very hard. It's very hard to, and that was, that took me a long time to really, and I have done so. Again, even though I'm upset, that's okay. Um, That they're just there in your life and then they're gone. They're just there and then they're gone. There's nothing. There's nothing in between. There's no preparedness. There's no good. There's no telling her that you love her. There's no telling her that you will mind her little boy. There's no telling her that, you know, the world's a better place because Dara was in it. There's none of that. There's just nothing. And after a lifetime of Dara living well and a lifetime of us having together, I think, you know, I just, even if I had that five minutes, I'd take it. Even though, as you quite rightly say, it would never be enough. But I... I would, I would give back all that clarity. I would give back all that perspective. I would give back that freedom. Mm-hmm. I'd give back everything. I'd be, give back being a better version of myself. Give me back my naivety and yes. my sister. And that's, oh my God. Yeah. That's perfect. Mm. That's exactly what it is. You'd give it all back. So it's not a, it's an and, it's not a, you know, it's not a, it's not a but. So, we have these things, you know, Dara died, but we have these things. It's not that. It's, it's Dara died and I now have these realisations and understandings and perspective. But for anything, I would give them all away to have her back, even if it was only for that five minutes. I'd give everything away. Because you would, because you, you know, you would. Yeah. But she, I think, you know... Dara fought so hard to live and she would be so mad. Oh, she'd be so mad. She would be so mad if I didn't live my life, a good life, a proper life, a real life, not an existence, not a shadow of a life where I'm waiting to die myself. Oh, she'd be furious and rightly furious, you know, and that's the way I see it. So having got to a place where I think when you're grieving, it feels to me as if somebody, as soon as you're grieving, somebody dies or whatever the loss in your life, it's as if somebody throws you a bag of rocks, this heavy bag of rocks. And they say, there you go now, Niamh, that's your bag of rocks. And no one else can carry that bag of rocks for you. So they can run alongside you, they can give you water, and you have to carry this bag of rocks for the rest of your life, and you're carrying it up a hill. That's what it feels like at the start. And I think in the beginning, 
you know, we stumble. The bag of rocks is grief, is loss. It's the weight of the loss of the person you love or the hope that you had. And as you're going along in the beginning, you stumble and you fall down and you struggle. And then in time, somehow you build the muscles, the muscles in your arms, the muscles in your core, the muscles in your back and your legs. And you learn to carry the weight of the loss of the person you love or the hope you had. That weight does not get lighter, but we get better at carrying it. And I think that's, for me, that's the bit around understanding that I can, you know, remember my sister and live my life have the balance between remembering and living and that's the bit you were talking about that sorrow and joy can coexist in that space well, grief is so paradoxical isn't it oh it's, yeah you know just the language you're using there it's an analogy that i've used many times with clients when they're like when is this going to go away and you're trying to say it isn't you know yeah. it won't be so acute it won't yeah. hurt so deeply but it's going to this is this is it now, you know, um, but I would have likened it to the, to the Camino of the Santiago, you know, oh. and I did it a couple of years ago with my daughter, which is beside the point, but I used the analogy of the first few days carrying that rucksack was like, oh my God, how are we going to get to the end of the road? Never mind Santiago. But somehow you do, you build the muscle and you're still carrying that rucksack. Well, actually we ended up getting rid of a bunch of stuff we didn't need along the way. But somehow you build up, you know, you build your capacity, your capacity. And that's painful. Yes. That's really painful. Yeah. You know, it's, um, you've touched on this, Neve, the secondary losses that happen. You know, as we change and as we grow and as we adapt to grief and accommodate to grief, we change fundamentally as people. We're not the same people. And for sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. I know I got very spiky in, like, and I'm, I'm pretty intolerant and I don't do small talk very well and, mm. you know, I, I'm quick to call bullshit. I'm like that, you know, that 70-year-old aunt that you go, oh God, <laughs> would she, is she, you know, Brilliant. I feel like that's happened to me way too soon. I'm like, Liz, filter, filter, you know. Yeah. But, you know, it, I, I'm not proud of all the changes that have happened in me is what I'm trying to say. Um, but they're real. What do you they're mean? Real, they're real. You know, and it, it does change you. But the secondary losses, the friendships then that just can't be sustained because you're so different or they're so different, you know. Would you speak a little bit about the things that surprised you? Like mm -hmm. one thing that's so common is um, people say those who I thought were going to be there weren't or some weren't. And lots of people who... I wouldn't have thought would have stepped in were right there like my rocks. I was lucky. I was really lucky because actually my friends, when I think of the people who have who had become my friends in my life long before Dara died, they turned out to be without training, without forewarning, without anything they turned out to be the most amazing people at propping me up when i couldn't stand and i didn't i haven't lost any friends 
I mean, I that's quite incredible to say. I moved away in the grief around infertility. I definitely moved away from some people for a period of time. So yeah. I got to a place where I didn't go to the christenings or the, you know, bits and pieces like that. I just didn't. And I moved away from that. I think when a marriage ends or a relationship ends in naturally, there will be some people who were maybe jointly friends who will just gently maybe move towards one or other of you. That has been absolutely minimal in our case. So again, really lucky on that, really fortunate on that. But in terms of bereavement, grief and Dara, all I have got is amazing friends and people who, and I don't have, I don't have wide, huge things of friends at all, but really good, solid ones. So actually my best friend lives right beside me. I have some really good friends. So I hate, a little bit of me says, oh, I don't even say best friend, but this is the girl, Taro. She, she lives right next door to me and she would come to my door each morning and she'd ring the bell and she just would take me from here, bring me into her house and she'd put me sitting at the table. She'd make me an omelette and I would sit there and cry and I'd cry as I ate the omelette and she wouldn't say a thing. She'd just potter around the kitchen and hand me the omelette and her children and husband would be in and out and her dog and stuff. And I just cried my way through each morning in each omelette. And she did that, or she dragged me out around the block for a 20 minute walk with the dog. Mm. I had another friend, Eleanor Galvin, great friend, who just would bring over flowers and brown bread and just bring them in, come in, hug me, you know, have a quick chat and off she'd go. Others did my shopping, some of our neighbors, I, of course, because of the, this time next year, will be millionaires. I, of course, was trying to lose weight and I was on a, a slimming program at the time and they would make meals that were to do with this plan and put them in my freezer. Um, I had other friends who would say, I know you're not here now. I know you're not able to remember me and my life and who I am, but I know you'll be back. And then, of course, there were the times I remembered so many said it, but the two that really stand out, I have a friend who's a psychologist, um, a sports psychologist um, in Waterford, Kira Losty, Dr. Kira Losty, and she said to me one day, she says, you're back. And we'd had some conversation and she just heard in me this spark and she just said, you're back. And, and she didn't mean you're back as in, because you're never back, you're a different person. But I knew what she meant. And Tara said it and Eleanor said it. They just, what they said is we can see in you something that we haven't seen in you in a long time. Mm -hmm. And that all again probably started this time last year. So around two years, two and a half years after Dara died, sort of September 2019. And people started to say, I can see a little flicker of you in there. We know you're not the you you were. But we can see you. Do you know? Yeah. So I think that friendship thing, I would say I've been really fortunate mm. in that, but I can see how in different times, what I would say, and I've never said this before, but I'm going to be honest, because it's only just struck me. When I was going through, we were going through the IVF, there would have been people who I was friends with who maybe they had needs in their life. They had things that were going on in their life. But with the IVF and that it was all private and wouldn't, I just wouldn't have 
except for you know my sisters really didn't really tell anybody and I wasn't there for those friends now interestingly when Dara died we've reconnected but there's a couple of people I'm thinking of and I realize what if I again again if I could go back me now could go back to me then I would say to tell those people I'm going through some big stuff in my life now I see that you need me I just need to tell you I want to be there I can't yeah I can't I'm trying to stay standing myself I can't I can't I just can't and I and even to name that just might have been nicer and kinder and better for them and for our friendship but I I probably just just quietly just without meaning to but just quietly without saying something I just stepped away now as I said we've reconnected and I feel great there's just a few people a couple of people maybe two people and I feel good about that and I feel happy that but I felt bad about that for a long time mm. but so it was more I wasn't able for them at that time of that previous loss and again the benefit of hindsight isn't yeah. it yeah. You'll know it the next time. Yeah. It's probably that the hindsight bit is one of the things I would wish for a reader of this book is that there might be something, as I said, that they may, may read now that might have no bearing on their life to later, but later they might be able to say, I wonder could be that thing, yeah. this be that yeah. thing that she was talking about. Yeah. And at least, you know, s- sort of almost avoid my banana skin. Yeah. And not that we need to, there's not, we have to have our banana skins and we have to, you know, it's not about sanitizing life and making life so that we only ever experience the goodness and we avoid the horribleness. We need to have all those ugly, messy experiences in life as well as the joyful ones. So it's not about that, but it's, I think in the grieving community, I think there is a, um, probably I would say there's a, there's a kindness in that people hand back. They, they, it's almost like they pass back down the line information, um, learnings that they have had and experienced themselves. It's, like it's compelling to. That's it. it. It's compelling to help people. Yeah. You know, when you've gone through something so dreadful, you hear people say this all the time I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. And it's exactly that. It's like we want to turn around and go, watch that, yes. watch that one. Yes. Maybe try this way. This is what happened to me. And it's, yes. it's some way of um, just making sense and giving back somehow. Yes. And I think what's interesting there is, you know, so I wouldn't be great for social media except Twitter. So I'm on Twitter and I like Twitter. Um, social media can be a cesspool at times. My experience so far has been of a community and I would be connected That's with people exactly yeah. exactly I'd be connected on there with people that I haven't met and I know we're socially distanced and I haven't been able to hug you but if it hadn't been COVID times I'd have given you such a big hug because I you know I've we've connected on there and I can see the work you do and it's brilliant I've never listened to any of your podcasts yet because I like I said with reading I didn't want to be influenced when I was writing but I will immerse myself in it but there was other people like you know, Kathleen Shada, um, Fiona Toomey, um, even Vicky Feeling. There's so many people who I've never met, but who somewhere along the line, loss and grief have touched their lives. You just know you get each yeah. other. And yeah. you find each other. Yeah. And you just, 
you you do seek each other out and you just find each other and and I think with each of us we maybe came to loss and grief from different perspectives and some of us are at different places in terms of time on that journey you know and again that's a journey without an end and I, I do understand that but I think there's something there about the sharing so I'll notice that we will all tend as long as we see it to mark each other's anniversaries so if somebody says it's the anniversary of their loss there's no way if I see that you can't pass that mark it acknowledge it and there's a warmth even though I've never met it's not all women but a lot of them are women even though I've never met these women you know Fiona and Kathleen and that I oh, there's such warmth for them it's you know it's it's one of the the notes I had today was it's like we know when someone gets it, when they know the space or they understand the pit, let's say. Um, it's like dogs it's, know people who are dog people. Yeah. Now that's yeah. a bit of a weird analogy, but you just know. know people who are dog oh, people. <laughs> good point, yes. No, but it's true. I remember going into one of my son's classrooms. Um, he was about seven and there was a new kid in the class and he happened to be sitting beside my son. And I remember looking at this little boy and he looked at me. And immediately it was like, what is your story? You know, he, when he looked at me, he looked at me like he, come, which is unusual for a yes. child. And I remember we had this moment of just looking at each other and, you know, hi, you know, saying hi. And I found out afterwards his father had died, you know, a few years previously. Uh, but I knew it. I knew, I knew nothing about him. Yeah. And it's this presence, this sense of presence that some people have it's like when that innocence and naivety is gone and something big happens in your life it's like you come into a much fuller version of yourself which is sensitive and vulnerable but also more empathetic and more compassionate or something but it's interesting how you can find those people even on twitter yes you there's an energy about the words they use or the way they communicate mm. or isn't it? Completely. And, and I think it has been, it would be one of the gifts that grief has brought is that understanding that even in the face of, you know, Albert Toomey would be another person actually when I think of now, but even in the face of trauma, loss, that these people choose kindness, kindness towards others yes. who are experiencing trauma and loss. And they don't need to do that. They could bunker down and just mind themselves and nobody would ever um you know say anything about them for that that would be perfectly okay to do yet each of those women for example that i've um, mentioned here and including you have at different times it could be a word it could be a nod it's just something to say it's okay you're okay I mean, this is not okay. None of this is okay that any of us have lost. It's a knowing. Yeah. It's just a knowing, isn't it? It's quite amazing. Yeah. That it was quite surprising. And I think what you're saying there, you know, you said the gifts of grief. It's very different to the experience of someone you love dying. Like someone you love dying is just pure shite and there's no other way of describing it. And with our grief experience, we can grow and learn and become, as you say, better versions of ourselves. Yeah. But it's not the same as someone we love dying. They're mm. different mm. things altogether. Yes. We're not making something good out of such a 
Oh no. Difficult loss. Oh no. No, absolutely not. Mm. No, they are linked in that would some of these things, would I have experienced some of these things or would have noticed some of these things if Dara had not died and if I hadn't gone through it, I'd gone, um, possibly not. You know, I might get to the end of my own life without some of the, the things I've learned, but I, so they're linked, but they're not. I wholly, wholly feel what you're saying. It's not this, you know, something good coming out. I do think, I'm hesitating because I do think the word meaning matters to me. I think finding meaning in the tragedy um, of loss was important to me. And maybe now I'm, I'm slow because I'm probably thinking this out as I'm talking. Maybe for me that's around helping you survive. If, yeah. if I can't change the fact that Dara has died and I can't bring her back, there can't be nothing or else what's the point? Can there be something? Can there be, so if that something is, you know, part of Dara's legacy is conversations around grief and loss and people having those conversations and saying, oh my gosh, I heard you tell how you struggle with X, Y, and Z. I now know that I'm not losing my mind, that that's what grief looks like. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so if it's that as a legacy, as a part of a legacy, if there's some meaning in that, what that essentially does for me, because people keep saying to me, thank you so much. And I say, <laughs> but actually, I have to be honest and put my hands up and say, there is such a selfishness to this too, because it helps me back, because it gives me meaning. And when you lose somebody you love and a sister, if your relationships are good, your sister or brother, they're the fabric of your life from childhood. Her, you know, Dara's life is woven in through mine. So when you lose that, you lose a part of your childhood, you lose a part of your future. And when you can find some meaning, because you can't change that, when you can find the meaning in it, it's definitely not, you know, making something good, it's not that. It's probably allowing you to just keep putting one foot in front of the it's other. Making meaning out of your grief rather than yeah. the randomness of an accident yes. that has taken away a life. Yes. You know? um, the book, Neve. why did you write the book? I mean, it's linked to what we were just saying. It's like trying to find the meaning and trying to make sense and trying to put something together mm. that somehow can mark this experience for you. I mean, your love for Dara is palpable as I sit here. Mm. I can feel it, I can, I can see and feel and hear how deeply you love her and how deeply you miss her. What does the book do? I think on the day Dara died, we were being driven to Mayo to bring her home and I took out my phone and I wrote on the notes section of my phone, I wrote three words and it was vicious, violent and visceral. And that's what it felt to me to be introduced to grief. That's what it felt like when, when the train hit and I heard that Dara had died. And I don't know why I wrote those words, maybe to just get them out, to name them. So I wrote those words and then that time was so overwhelming, there was information, there was travel, there was long hours, there's the admin of grief around a funeral and all of this um, 
you know, and then in our case, traveling to Mayo and, and learning about Dara's death and all of that. And so each day it was almost like I emptied my head onto the note section of my phone. And some days I would just write a word or some days it was a sentence. And I never really thought anything about that. I mean, I had no notion. I'd been approached to write a book on several things by different people, not publishers, but different people over the years. And a couple of times I was half tempted, but I had no heart in it. So I never did it. And then about six weeks after Dara died, I was going back to work and I was ready to go back to work. And not everybody needs to see somebody professionally when they're grieving. I personally did. And I went to see a clinical psychologist who works in that trauma space and he has been an amazing support. And we got me ready. I was ready to go back to work, to be fully present there with my clients. And I also at the time was the agony aunt on Today FM radio and Neil Delamere was doing the show at the time. And we started there with me going back there and we knew I couldn't go straight back into the problems that we'd had before. The listeners knew where I'd been and that I was Dara's sister. So he just talked to me about what it was like surviving those first few weeks of grief and loss, six, seven weeks. The response was off the charts to the station, to me, very much people saying, I didn't know what I was feeling, but now I know. Or I didn't, it's the bit we talked about earlier, I didn't know that, that actually I am okay. I thought I was doing grieving wrong. I hear your struggle, now I feel it's okay for me to struggle. There was this huge tsunami. So I probably put all that there, thought, oh, that's lovely, I'm happy to help, but didn't think anything. And then over time, I suppose within that first year, I was approached by four different publishers and Gail Books, I met them all, maybe out of curiosity really and Gill books were just such a fit they were they have been fantastic it must have been so hard for them to work with an author who missed so many deadlines and who stopped and halted so many times with grief so hard for them and they've just been amazing i mean it's quite a feat to write a book in the midst of grief leave most of us can't even read a book I don't think, and I couldn't read. It's funny that you say that. Well, it's not funny because it's, you know, anybody who's grieving understands it. But so it took, I'm an avid reader. If I go on holidays, I would read 12 books when we used to go on holidays. Do you remember that? For two weeks. (laughs) Um, So I would read 12 books. I love all the, you know, Lee Child, Jeffrey Deaver, all the sort of thrillery ones. Um, And, but after Dara died, I couldn't read. I would dip into, I'd go, I've hundreds of psychology books. And each week I do, I sit down, I take some time, take a spread of books and I just go through bits and pieces to keep my reading up to date. So I managed to do that, but I couldn't do any other reading and it probably took me about a year before I could. And so I understand the reading bit. I probably started writing just after the first anniversary, somewhere there. And so it's taken me two years to write it, two and a bit years to write it and stop, start. I think writing a book while you're grieving now has made it for a better book because it was almost in, it really is the truth. I wrote with the breaks off and it is in real time what grief has been like using those notes that I made, my real words, my actual at the time words as a foundation and building from that. So in that way, it's probably a better book, but I would never do that again because it was unbelievably difficult. It was unbelievably difficult. The physical act of producing over 100,000 words and having to sit to write that 
Um, again, Gil were amazing. I gave them in September 2019. I handed them my <laughs> first, I'm laughing, I handed them my first, you know, sort of um, go, if you like, at the book. And they came back, they read it, and they came back and they said, yeah, so that's okay, so it needs a sensitive edit. And I thought, oh, that's great. I was delighted with myself. When I then, by Christmas 2019, had finished the actual edit, which was a masterclass by Gail, I learned how to write. I learned how to, you know, well, I knew how to write, but I learned how to shape my writing and bring the reader in. What I realised that what they meant when they said it needs a sensitive edit is that there is so much stuff in there that you needed to write, but the reader doesn't need to read. Mm. And we get that you had to write that yourself to just get that out. Because I was doing some work in the psychology sessions, but they're an hour a week. This was hours of getting stuff out. And that's what they meant by a sensitive edit. So now I understand that. So the whole process, very cathartic, very painful, physically very hard. But actually, I'll be a psychologist 30 years next year. This almost feels like one of the most important bits of work. It's just, it's, um, when I hear people say, you know, I get emails and somebody say, my baby died and, and I'm reading your book or I've read your book. My baby died four years ago or five years ago and you're saying my life. Yeah. You're saying my story, even though my loss and their loss are completely different. Mm. I can't imagine what it would be like to lose a child. It's and the so, humanity comes yeah. out in the pages need. Yeah. I told you I read many books that are sent to me for people who'd like to appear on the podcast. And I read yours, you know, I, I think I'm 14 chapters out of 16 read, but in two days, you know. Wow. Um, and thank you. As I said, to give a whitewashed version of grief would have done such a disservice to the reader because people would have been left going, well, I have so much more going on than she does. Yeah. There's something wrong with me, but you name it when you're on your knees, you name it when you're wailing, you name it when you're holding back, yeah. you name it when you're raging to the sky, you name your vulnerability. And that is what will have someone at the end of the day close the book and breathe a sigh of relief and that'll be the voice that's saying you're not crazy you're human and you're grieving and you loved and this is what it means to lose someone you love and you're not on your own you're not on your own i think that's so important yeah. but i yeah. really appreciate you saying that about not whitewashing because the whole experience of what's quite interesting is you write a book so agreed to write the book and then got into the process of writing it and then and wrote it and then got into the process of edi editing, which was it was like doing a degree course in three months, you know, a, a writing degree course. I learned so much. It was if you took the emotion out of the content of the book away and you just look at the process of editing, it was fabulous, such an, an interesting process. But then when I submitted it, it's only then my goodness. It's only then that my brain whispered, people will read this. People will read this. What the hell was that part of my brain doing for the past two years when I was writing it? And, and why didn't it speak up then? And so I got quite frightened because I felt so vulnerable. And I just thought, 
you big Egypt, you big Egypt, what have you done? Why did you just not write this and just have it on your laptop? You know, why did you agree to actually put it out into the world? And I really, I struggled with that. And it has been quite tough even doing the interviews. I've had some really kind interviews and really lovely ones. But it has been quite frightening doing that because you're so vulnerable. And it's when I hear things like you've just said or get the emails that I'm getting or the text messages or the DMs that I'm getting that I will get to answer all of them in time. That's what makes me say... I'm glad I've done it. I don't believe I would ever be ever personal in my writing again. I'm not sure that I ever could because it's completely terrifying. Um, and, 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 you know, I'm, I'm fairly hardy. You know, I'd be a Connemara pony rather than a racehorse. <laughs> so I'm fairly hardy, you know. Well, it's like going out naked. I mean, yeah. isn't it? It's... In Those some ways, dreams I, we'd have of yeah. being exposed. Yeah, or, totally. Yeah. You know, and so... It and takes that's, tremendous courage. Yeah, and I, and I'm glad. I'm really, I'm properly gra- glad to have just maybe added with you and with others to give a voice in that grief space. And maybe as a psychologist, it possibly would have felt inauthentic of me to just ignore that and to never go there and to never say anything. There's something, but that just didn't feel right. Um, but it is, it has been and is, it's a huge risk and a huge vulnerability. So I'm glad I've done it. Um, I have no regrets. I'm, I'm really happy with it. I'm so proud of it as a piece of work. And for every person who has texted or come up to socially distance, of course, my parents or my family or my relations or my friends and said, this has helped my mom or this has helped my cousin. For all of those it was worth doing, and I'm very glad. And that's already, and it's only out not even a week. Yeah. You know, and I think as as they come crashing in, you know, it will really give you much more courage around the book. People don't get grief, and as a griever, you cannot get it right ever in terms of the public. You know, oh my God, she's going to the grave every day. There's something wrong with her. She's not managing this oh my God, she hasn't gone to the grave at all. There's something wrong, you know. Yes. People will always judge and have an opinion Mm. and they just don't understand it. And people can be so insensitive. Mm. Um, They probably don't mean to be, so there's probably no intent at all. Yeah. They don't mean to be. It's just if you don't know it, like all the usual cliches of you're so strong, I wouldn't be able to do it. Um, oh, the list goes on and how we interpret that and there, those who are grieving how we interpret that um, it can be very painful and I think mm-hmm. in grief when we meet someone who's grieving we can either ease their experience or exacerbate their experience rarely do we say, stay neutral so if, if people were to take something from this conversation how can you ease this experience and sometimes it's to say something mm. and sometimes it's to say nothing yeah um yeah. but listen listen is number one just listen mm. see what's needed it's not about you getting it right mm. what does this person need right now yeah and i think there's something there about realizing that actually you know for me would i even as a psychologist would i have understood this before dara died yeah. really understood grief no i mean i don't think you have to 
I don't think I need to, to, to have experienced anxiety, you know, in order to be able to help somebody who's experiencing anxiety. So I don't think it has to be that. But I think that there are some things in life where you, it's a bit like, so I'm not a mother. So, but <laughs> I think that bit around, I'm, I'm laughing because a lot of my pals who are mothers, um, you know, at different times where <laughs> they'll say, nobody told me that it was like this you know those first days and nights and weeks and months of parenthood you know and I think I can have an idea what it's like to be a mother or a father you know in those early times but I can't know it I've never done it so so I think the grief bit and the loss bit is quite like that in that you can there's some things you just have to live it to know it and maybe that's a big part of the reason of of writing this is that there's just so much stuff there that I didn't know if if my experience in that book was stuff that I had known before and that I thought everybody else knew I wouldn't have written the book and there would have been no need to write the book but it surprised me and I understood that I was hearing people giving out to themselves for not in air quotes grieving properly there is no grieving Whatever properly. Whatever the hell that looks like. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, Niamh, I think it's a tremendous gift to anyone who's trying to figure out grief. And for people who aren't, no grief before it hits you. And no grief, you know, because somebody you know is grieving. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's really beautifully done. Mm-hmm. It's exceptionally moving. I feel a warmth to Dara that this woman I've never mm-hmm. met... You know, I, I, your love is tangible and I feel it in my belly thinking wow. of her. And you haven't even read, if you've got to 14, actually, now to anybody listening, you don't have to skip from chapters zero or, you know, one to, to 15, but I think chapters 15, 16 and the afterward, the afterward is about Dara. They let me write okay. a chapter on Dara and it's just beautiful. And so you haven't even read haven't the even best bits there. of the book. I'm on page 238. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so I, I'm very touched by that, um, that you say about even Dara and the warmth. And I think another thing that's really important to say is I would not have written this book if I hadn't found hope. If I hadn't found from other grievers and from my own experience, if I hadn't found that truth, that grief is on one hand, truly horrific. And not but, but and on the other hand, another truth about grief and loss is that it is survivable and that we can in time, over time and with work, because I don't think we're passive in grieving. I think we need to when we're ready and in the ways we can, we need to be an active participant in it. Mm, I agree. But I think find that place where we can learn to carry the loss of the person or the love or the hope we had, carry the loss and live our life. If, if, if somebody said to me, what's the goal of grieving? I don't think it has a goal, but if, it, if I if it forced me, I would say it's to help us find that balance between remembering and living. And I think if I hadn't found that myself and gotten to that place yeah. myself, I wouldn't have written the book. About this time last year, Dara used to say this saying, so if you were going to meet her somewhere and she was late, she'd always do this, she was late or called out, on, you know, on a call out and said, you know, I have to work. 
um, she would just say to you, no, you go ahead, you crack on and I'll follow you. And this time last year, that expression, you crack on, kept coming into my head. And it was as if she was saying, go on, girl. Like, go on and live your life. You crack on. What would she say about this book? Oh, I hope she'd be so proud. I hope she would say, you know, if other people who are hurting the way my family has hurt and is hurting, if those other people can have some comfort from knowing that you can survive that loss, you can survive that loss, and you can go on to live a rich and warm and loving and rewarding and hopeful life, then I think Dara Fitz would say, on you go, girl, with your mm. book. Yeah. So even in death, she's saving lives through your book. <laughs> yeah. I hope so. Eve, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me on. And I look forward to listening to the other episodes of your podcast wow. that I've seen coming up for so long, but that I haven't gone near because I didn't want to be influenced. Some so amazing people um, speaking on the podcast, everybody's story. Like every time I speak with someone, it's like, oh my God, I go home feeling so warm and so full of faith and humanity. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a real precious gift to be able to do this. I know that sounds very cliche, but it certainly... It's authentic. I it's hear you gift. mean it. Yeah. yeah. And I think what it does also is, to be honest with you, it shows you humanity. It shows you what humans are made of and what they're capable of and what we can do. You have heard some of the most awful stories, life stories, not made up stories, life stories, real stories. And you have heard how people navigate that. And this is, this is my story, but I want to be clear. This is not about me. This is about the story of loss, the story of grief, the story of love, the I story mean, of hope. You didn't read anything else. And no. you didn't, like, I know, I know 80 people who could have written that book. Wow. <laughs> apart from Dara's love in terms of the experience of it. You wow. Know? Yeah. What was it you said earlier about coming out of the bunker? Yeah. Or you said it was like, you know, I blew up and there's bits of me everywhere. The train like hitting. These are all the things, the train hitting. These are all the things I hear over and over again. Kira Kelly describes it like a truckload of grief was dumped on her. Um, Helen Lamb describes it like, it's like, oh, my life was thrown up in the air and just some bits came back and I was looking for them. Another bereaved mum describes, it's like, I'm blown into smithereens and I can't find the pieces of me. Wow, the same you know, words. That's amazing. Um, it, and it is, it's like, it's all metaphor and symbolic because we don't have language. Mm. Like, it's, I think it's because, like you said at the very beginning, grief is so physical and so visceral. It is languageless, <laughs> you know, and mm. we're so used to using language, but... In grief, we really need a body-up approach as well as a top-down, a head-down approach yeah. to describe the experience. And, and because it's so physical, people are looking for symbolic ways mm. of describing what's happening in their body. Yeah. If yeah. I was a musician, I would have written a song. Yeah. I would have written a song. For me, it just happened to be words and it happened to be a book. But there was such a need to do something with the pain and to express it. 
and when I hear now, when I hear songs, you know, so, and I don't mean the obvious songs, you know, like Chris Martin's Fix You, which yeah. is a lovely idea, you know, but got it a little bit wrong there, Chris, because that's not really meant, but obviously you can fix somebody, but a beautiful sentiment in that song. You know, so I don't mean the obvious ones, but just different songs. When I hear some songs and I realise that person who wrote that song and where they were in their life when they wrote that song, I really resonate with that, you know. And so for me, it happened to be a book. But if I was a musician, this wouldn't be a book. It would be a song. So I think that I that need to express mm. and I'd say to anybody who's grieving when you're ready, whatever it is, is your way to express if you want to run it out, if you want to garden it out and create something beautiful that way, if you want to sing it out or play it out, you know, it doesn't matter. See if you can find some way, as long as it gets out, exactly. It needs expression, absolutely. Yeah, but thank you for inviting me on. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, total pleasure. And thanks, Neve. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Shapes of Grief. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical or psychological advice. And if your grief is making you unwell, please do go to your healthcare provider. Grief is a normal part of being human. You're not alone. Once again, please do consider becoming a patron of Shapes of Grief on patreon.com. This is a listener-supported podcast, and we rely on your support to keep us going. The music was written by Silly Wizard and performed by Sue Hart and Martin Craddock especially for the Shapes of Grief podcast. Until the next time, from me, Liz Gleeson, stay well and take very good care. On a storm-torn shoreline, a woman was standing. It's fe-